and read for us. Luke 19, starting with the 28th verse, going down to the 40th verse. And when he, Jesus, had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany, at the mount that was called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to him, said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks in the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. And as he was drawing near, Already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and to praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to them, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he said, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. All right, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that as we come in our study to this pivotal section of scripture, um, God, we ask that you would bless our, our um, time together as we discuss it, as we um, see uh, the, the um, stark and powerful and beautiful reality of the coming of your son uh, and the reason for which he came. God, we ask that, uh, God, you would bless the hearing uh, and the teaching of your word, uh, that uh, as we always pray, that you would bring uh, revival to the churches of Blount County, that you would bring revival to the churches of East Tennessee, that you would bring revival um, to the churches of the United States, that you would bring revival to, um, God, the churches uh, around the world, that each day are preaching the gospel. God, we pray that um, you would use them to to bring a light to those in darkness, um, that uh, people would see your son, Jesus Christ, that they would understand what he has done for them. They would understand the depth of their own depravity and that they would turn to Jesus Christ for salvation by faith. God, we ask that we would be uh, one outpost, that we would be one embassy um, of the gospel uh, in your kingdom. Um, God, that you would use uh, not only the ministry of our church, but that you would use each of our lives uh, to to spread the good news of Jesus Christ. God, we thank you. We praise you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So um, we'll start with kind of an illustration from history, probably a story that many of you um, are at least kind of generally familiar with, and that is um, the story of Julius Caesar crossing the Rubicon. 
right? And so in January of the year 49 BC, Julius Caesar, who had been the, the governor of, of Gaul, which is modern day France, was ordered um, because of a bunch of political intrigue and, and political uh, rivalry and back and forth. He was ordered to disband his army and return to Rome, uh, probably to his own death uh, in, in the long run. Um, but instead, uh, he disobeyed that order and he marched his army south out of Gaul over the Alps or, or around the Alps. Um, until he got to a river in northern Italy that's called the Rubicon. And Ru- the Rubicon River marked the, the, the border between Italy proper and, and the northern regions. And there was a law in place that said you were not allowed to bring an army across that river. No general, no ruler, no governor, no one was allowed to bring an army into um, Rome, uh, Italy proper, because that would be seen as a sign of war, a sign of, of usurpation. And, uh, Julius Caesar weighed his options, uh, and what he expected would be the case in, um, in, uh, the future for him. And he decided to bring his army and to march on Rome. And so, uh, in January of that year, he crossed the Rubicon River and, and, um, a number of historians have basically said that, um, uh, he, as he crossed and as his army began to cross the river, he uttered the phrase, the die is cast. All right. The idea of taking a dice and rolling it. And once it's out of your hand, then the chips are going to fall where they may. In fact, the very phrase of crossing the Rubicon has basically come down in, in history and in our in our language is meaning it's it's a picture of saying uh, this is a point of no return. Right. After this, um, there's there's no turning back from the events that will take place. And so I think um, that. The story of Jesus' triumphal entry, that's typically what it's called in, uh, if you look in the headings of your Bible, that the story of the triumphal entry is functionally Jesus' Rubicon, all right? This is the point in his ministry at which, in a way, he has been heading to for years, but also in a way he has been holding back from, in a sense, because he knows that once he crosses that point, that there's no turning back. Um, that the events will quickly fall into place um, that will bring about his own death um, and crucifixion and resurrection, all right? And so we've talked about the fact that up until this point, Jesus has participated um, or, or propagated in some way this idea that we refer to as the messianic secret, that he has treated his messianic identity with a certain de-emphasis, right? When somebody comes along and says, hey, you're the Messiah, he kind of says, don't don't talk about that. Like, keep that on the down low. Don't go tell people that. And sometimes it doesn't matter. People go and tell people anyway. But up until this point, he has sort of kept that um, uh, on the down low. But at this point, he is going to do something so blatant that everyone will see the symbolism of it. All right? And again, there's a tendency, I think, to, to read this passage and almost to see it as a what could have been sort of story. Like we see the way the crowds respond to Jesus in praise and worship, and we think this could have been the way things worked out. In fact, what we probably, the case is, is that this is probably the most positive that the people respond to Jesus anywhere in the Gospels. 
But I think this passage is not so much a could have been passage, but it's a what must be passage. We get a picture um, that there was never any other way that this story could have played out. But as, as is often the case, Jesus does that in a very subtle way. He does that through uh, illusion. He does that through pointing back to the prophetic words of the Old Testament to demonstrate a deeper truth than just the truth that we see up front, okay? And so that's kind of the direction we're going to go. I'm not exactly sure that there's sort of a, this is a weird thing to say at the beginning of the sermon, but there's sort of a, a narrative line that we're going to follow, but that doesn't have a whole lot of maybe hooks around, like a whole lot of points to just sort of stop and go, hmm, I'm going to write that down in my journal and move. We're just going to sort of go through the story and see the bigger picture and, and how the story plays into the coming weeks of Jesus' life. Because remember the, the where we're at in, in sort of the setting, right? So Jesus has been um, making his way towards Jerusalem for months now. He's just left the city of Jericho, which is the last major city. If you're coming to Jerusalem from the north, it's the last major stop. We met blind Bartimaeus there, and blind Bartimaeus called Jesus the son of David, which is a specifically messianic title, and Jesus seemed to respond positively to that messianic title. Now, Jesus has made the final 18-mile journey and 3,500 feet of elevation to the city of Jerusalem. And remember this also, this is the last week of Jesus' earthly life. And we still got a whole lot of Luke to go, but we begin, this is the last week of Jesus' earthly life. In five days from this point of the story, Jesus will be dead. And in seven days, he'll be alive again. Moreover, it's important to recognize this is the Passover. So what's going on is there are thousands of pilgrims making their way to Jerusalem at the same time to celebrate the Passover. Obviously, the Passover, we remember that the, the, it is the commemoration of when the, the angel of death passed over the people of Israel, um, which ultimately led to their freedom from bondage. So all that to say, there's a lot of people in town, okay? There's a lot of people on the road coming to Jerusalem. And so it says this in verse 28, when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. And when he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, all right, Jesus stops outside of Jerusalem at these two little towns that are right next to each other, Bethany and Bethpage. Okay, we've, we've, we've seen these places. You see these places at other place, uh, other stories in, in the New Testament. Um, Lazarus was lay, raised in that, in those communities. Um, but what Jesus stops for seems a little odd, honestly, in the story. Like the, the, the fact that this is included just seems a little odd, or at least the details that we see from it. Because what does it go on to say? Verse 29, it says, and he sent in two disciples and he said, go into the village in front of you where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he has told them. As they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? Okay. Now here's the reason why I kind of read it that way. It is to draw attention to the fact 
of a certain word in that passage. Now, a lot of people read this story and they assume that something supernatural is going on. Um, that through some sort of verbal command of these disciples, like the guy who owns the donkey is Jedi mind tricked, right, into handing it over. Like, this is not the donkey you're looking for kind of thing, right? And so he just, they walk up and they're like, the Lord has need of it. And they're like, the Lord has need of it. And then they hand it over to him. That could be the case. I don't think that's what's going on here. Here's what probably is the case. The probably is the case that this was a prearranged deal, okay? We know from the other gospels that Jesus has been in this community within the last few months. Um, we know that it is, it is, he's, he's, John tells us that he was, that he was here very recently. And so probably what the deal is, is that very simply, it was a prearranged deal that Jesus had gone to this man and said, I'm going to be back in a few months and I need a donkey to ride into Jerusalem on. Can I have yours when I come back? And the man had said, yeah. And so again, Bethany and Beth Page are probably tiny little communities. They're small towns. They're the kind of place that if the stranger walked up to a, a donkey and just started untying it and taking it off, somebody in the town would go, Hey dude, what are you doing with that donkey? And they said, Oh, well, the Lord has need of it. We've already made an arrangement here. And so he takes it. Now, again, it's sort of a, there's a lot of, there's a lot of space dedicated. There's four or five verses dedicated to that little story. And it seems like you could have done the work by just saying, and Jesus got a donkey in a town and, you know, whatever. Why does he say all of this stuff? And moreover, why does that word keep on coming up? That word untying. Now, here's the deal. I'm going to be, I'm going to be honest. We're going to zoom in on something because it may have no significance. But oftentimes you find in the Bible when a word keeps on popping up in a small amount of area, there's some sort of emphasis that is being drawn to it, okay? And I think there is some prophetic importance to that passage. Jesus is drawing our attention to a few things in this whole story. One of them is very obvious and blatant. The other one is probably more subtle, even subtle to the point where many commentators don't think it's there, and I could be wrong about it. Okay, but but you'll see what I'm talking about in just a second. So so this use of the word tied over and over again, why are we why is he drawing attention and using this word? We would assume the donkey was tied, right? We don't it's not a free range donkey. Probably he doesn't just walk out into a field and go, let's wrangle some donkey and get it and use it. Okay, we would assume the donkey was tied. Why does he keep on drawing attention to that verbiage? Well, I think maybe that it is a reference to the prophecy about Judah in Genesis chapter 49. It's drawing our attention back to that, okay? And so this is what, if you remember, um, Jacob goes and he blesses each of his sons, and he gives a sort of prophetic promise to each of them, some good promises, some bad promises. But when he comes to Judah, through whose lineage Jesus comes, he says this, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him and to him shall be the obedience of the people. So he is prophesying a, a rule for the descendants of Judah. And then he says this, verse 11, tying his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to a choice vine. He has washed his garments in wine and his vestitures in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. So in the context of that passage, if you had read it in, in Jacob's time, the, the context is God is promising that A, the house of Judah would rule for all eternity. And also there's this imagery of abundance and provision. 
for the house of Judah, okay? So the very idea that you would tie a donkey to a grapevine, you would never do that. You know why? It's probably obvious. Because the donkey's going to eat all your grapes. That's not a normal thing you would do. The only reason you might tie a donkey to a grapevine is that grapevines of this caliber were so everywhere, so plentiful, they didn't even matter. What difference does it make if the donkey eats the grapes? We got so many grapes, let him have some, okay? That's sort of the picture that we see in this passage. There is, uh, it goes on to say, he washes his garments in wine and his vestitures in the blood of grapes. That is a picture of saying this. Um, wine is so everywhere in our culture. Like wine is so uh, superfluous. We've got an abundance of wine. You can wash your clothes in it, right? It's, it's everywhere. It's like dishwater to us, okay? That's how prevalent this wine is. These are all pictures of of blessing and abundance for the nation of of Judah. But also, there's this interesting line, this interesting word of being bound or tied in that. And then when we start connecting that to the other imagery, this imagery of wine, the blood of grapes, I'm not sure, but what there is something more going on there, okay? We are meant to draw our attention, I think, to this story about who Jesus is and the fact that the scepter will not depart from him. But that's a subtle connection. All right. Maybe even to the point where people would say, man, I think you're, you're, you're stretching it, Ash. Okay. There's, it might be there, but, the, but there's, there's, you're, you're, you're having to make a little bit of a leap there. And that may be the case, but here's the deal. The second one is not that way. Um, the second one is more blatant, blatant to us and blatant to the people in this time. Luke does not make the connection for us, neither does Mark, but Matthew and John do. And they point to the fact that Jesus riding this donkey into town is a fulfillment of Zechariah 9 and the prophecy about the Messiah there. So Zechariah 9 uh, and down through 11 says this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey, okay? Did you notice we just saw that same donkey, colt, foal language in that passage from Genesis, which is, again, why I think there may be a connection between those things. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations, His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant, it's a key phrase, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. All right. So what is that prophecy pointing to? It's pointing to this era of ultimate peace that the Messiah is going to bring in. And this Messiah who is righteous and humble comes riding into Jerusalem mounted on a donkey, okay? Now, we all know the deal. What do conquering kings ride into towns on? They come in on white horses. But Jesus doesn't. Jesus comes in. This messianic ruler is going to come into Jerusalem riding a donkey as a symbol of his humility, um, that he's bringing peace and not a sword. Um, and so, so we know that imagery. But here's the key. That passage in Zechariah had long been understood to be referring to the Messiah. So the Jews would have heard, understood it that way. 
It was well known. It wasn't an obscure passage, right? It wasn't some little hidden thing that nobody would have seen until after the fact. It was something they all would have recognized. And so the point is, when Jesus comes into Jerusalem on this day, John tells us that the word gets out that Jesus is on his way. And so again, there are hundreds Thousands of pilgrims approaching Jerusalem. They've heard about Jesus approaching. They've heard about his teaching and miracles. They've, uh, th- those who are coming from Jericho have heard or seen the healing of blind Bartimaeus. Those who are living around Jerusalem have heard the stories about the raising of Lazarus just weeks or months before this event, which happened in Bethany. Everyone hears that Jesus is on his way and they come out to see Jesus get there. And then it's a cool scene. You know, I've, I've had the blessing of getting to go to Jerusalem. There's, there's the, the, the hill that the city is on proper. And then there's a valley and then there's the Mount of Olives. And so it's its own little mountain. And so you come across a road across the Mount of Olives. And when you get to the top of the Mount of Olives, you look out and you see a full view of the city. And the temple would have been sitting on the ridge right there, you know, gleaming and brilliant and massive in this cool picture. So all these people are waiting. And what happens? All of a sudden, Jesus comes over the hilltop. And what's he doing? He's riding on a donkey. And everybody immediately would have gone, are you kidding me? Like, they know what it means, okay? They understand the symbolism. And so, again, let me put it this way. Up until this point, Jesus has been secretive in some ways with his messianic role, but now he is letting his flag fly. All right. Um, the world has been asking, are you the Messiah? Are you the one that is to come? And now Jesus is saying, yep, I am that person. I am the Messiah. I am the chosen one. I am the Christ. I am the son of God. I have come here to fulfill every prophecy that was written about the Messiah uh, for hundreds and thousands of years before my birth. I am the one who has healed the lame and brought sight to the blind and raised the dead and cast out demons. Um, I am the one whom the father spoke of and said, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. I am the reason all these people are ultimately coming to in the Passover to worship. This is the day. And everybody responds the way you would think they would respond. He rode along, it says in verse 36, and they spread their cloaks out on the road as he was drawing near. Already on his way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began rejoicing and praising God with a loud voice for the mighty works that they had seen. Right? This is a, this is it. Okay? When I said a minute ago, what could have been, you get that feeling that this is what it's, there's a level, an earthly level, but this is what it's going to look like in heaven one day. Right? This is what it's going to look like when we walk in. This is going to be the scene that is going on. They spread their cloaks out on the ground. We know what that means. That's a sign of honor. Okay? The idea that your feet are too holy. The feet of your donkey are are too holy to even touch the ground. Okay, we do the same thing in symbolism. Now we roll out red carpets for people. When you get married, your flower girl puts flower petals so that the bride doesn't have to walk on the ground. That's the imagery. Everybody's saying Jesus is is too good, too righteous to even have his feet touch the ground. Luke doesn't specifically mention a key detail, but we're told this in Mark that not only do they lay their coats in the ground, but they take these branches. 
these palm fronds, and they lay them on the ground also as a symbol of honor, which is where our tradition of Palm Sunday comes from, right? And Luke records what the people are saying, whether they're saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. So again, that phrase, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, is looking back to another passage. It's looking back to Psalm 118, the last of a group of psalms that we call the Hallel Psalms. Psalm 113 through 118 had become central in the Jewish pilgrimage liturgy. So what I mean by that is when people came to Jerusalem on pilgrimage, the songs they always sang as they ascended into the city, as they ascended the Mount of God, they would sing Psalm 113, 14, 15, 16, 17, and 18. All right? Now, because of that fact, there's a little bit of controversy that comes into this passage right here, at least among certain commentators, because certain commentators will go to this and say, the very fact that people traditionally sang these psalms every time they came to Jerusalem for Passover probably indicates that when these people are singing them, they're not actually singing them to Jesus. They're just singing them because everybody sings them every time they come to Jerusalem for Passover. In fact, it was even customary to lay palm fronds on the ground to welcome pilgrims who were coming in to the city. And so there are some commentators who will basically say, you know what, um, while this passage has significance for us in hindsight, the, the people probably didn't even realize Jesus was there. They would have sung these songs anyway. They would have laid these palm fronds on the ground anyway. And the reality is, here's the deal, that's nonsense. That is not accurate. The reason is, is, if we just looked at Luke, we might could maybe think that. But when we look at other the other Gospels, we know that can't be the case. Matthew tells us that the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee, right? Everybody's talking about it. Luke tells us, he says, when all these things are happening and the people are giving Jesus praise, what happens? The Pharisees come out. They get what's going on. They get that Jesus is being ascribed as king. And they say, teacher, tell your people to shut up. This is not right. This is blasphemy. You can't let these people ascribe to you the messianic title. And what does Jesus say to them? He says, I tell you, if they're silent, the rocks are going to cry out in their place. Because everybody knows what's going on. The symbolism of what is going on. The king is coming to town, right? He is coming in the name of the Lord. The messianic overtones are huge and completely recognizable. And man, notice the, the other part of that line that it says, uh, that the people are calling out and said, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And look what they say, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. What does that sound like? And it sounds like the angels when Jesus was born. Right? It sounds like this heavenly chorus that is going on, welcoming him into the city. And again, this is the way it feels like it should be. We get this little glimpse of this is the way it should be, except here's the thing. It can't be. It can't be. This is not a picture of how it should be. 
This is a picture of how it absolutely cannot be. There's another interesting connection that I want you to notice. And it goes back to that Psalm 118 passage. In that Zechariah prophecy, we see this king who brings peace. Okay, But in Psalm 118, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. If you keep on reading in that psalm, it continues and says this. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God and he has made his light to shine upon us. Seems in keeping, right? And then what's the next word? Bind. Tie up. There's that word again. Tie up what? Tie or bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. This time, when we hear about this tying language, the picture is of the sacrifice being brought into the temple and being tied to the altar. Okay, so the deal is, is the picture is this. You would bring the lamb in And you know what? That lamb doesn't want to get sacrificed. And so what you would have to do is you would have to bind it to the altar. You would tie its four legs to the four corners of the altar. The the, the altar kind of had these horns, these points, and you would tie that sacrifice there so that it wouldn't run off or get away or do whatever in the process of, of sacrificing. We think of Jesus finally making a blatant declaration of his Messiahship, and the people think that means exaltation, and it does, but Jesus knows something deeper, and that is Jesus coming to Jerusalem means not his triumph, it means his death, it means his sacrifice. And all these passages that keep on getting referenced are all subtly looking back to those kind of ideas. Jesus knows that this is not a story that ends with the people embracing him as Messiah, setting him up as king, and everything going well. At least not in the short term. It's a story that must progress through his crucifixion and to his death. And again, I think that perhaps this is part of the reticence that we see in Jesus in the Messianic secret. Jesus knows that once he arrives at Jerusalem and symbolically declares himself as the Messiah, that there's no turning back at that point. And here's the deal. I know Jesus knew what his mission was, but in his humanity, as we see in the Garden of Gethsemane, there is a... It's scary, right? He knows what is coming. And so there has been a tendency maybe in his life up to this point to say, I know what I have to do, but I'm afraid to do it. And I think that's maybe what we are seeing in the background here. The passage is reminding us and reminding Jesus in his humanity, in the emotion of the moment, that as much as he might wish that things were the way they were when the crowds were praising him, they can't be. Because if things were that way, then we're all dead. Have you ever thought, I don't know if you did this, I used to think when I was a little kid, I would think, you know what, if I had a time machine, I'd go back and I'd save Jesus. 
man, I would go back and like, I'd, I'd get him out of there. I'd tell those people that he was the son of God and not to kill him. Like I'd go back and do something about that. And you know what? That's a sweet thing for a little child to think. But we know the truth is, is if that ever were to be able to be ha- happen, um, we'd all be dead. We would all be in hell. Something would have broken in the plan of God, which obviously it couldn't have. We see these prophecies that get lined up in Genesis, in Zechariah, in Psalms. The scepter will not depart from him. We know that. With his rule will come blessing and abundance. He comes in righteousness. He comes in humility. Jesus comes to bring peace. He comes to bring salvation. But those things can only happen through the blood of the covenant. Those things can only happen by the sacrifice being bound and slaughtered. Jesus must die for his people. And only through his death will we actually be able to receive all of those things that he has promised us. Only through his death will we end up worshiping him the way that he deserves to be worshiped and we see a glimpse of in this passage. Only in the recognition that the cost of our sins is so great that Jesus Christ must fulfill his destiny and die. But God's grace is greater than all of our sin. Jesus recognizes his mission at this point. The die is cast, you could say. And he is headed towards what God has called him to at this point. So again, I'm going to end it there. And I'm not exactly sure what the hook is on that passage, right? Um, but what I think it does is it gives us a neat insight into the heart and mind of Jesus as he approaches Jerusalem. That we see a picture of not only of his humanity in that passage, but we see a picture of the what he committed to what he knew was coming, and yet the great love that he had for us that he turned himself over into. And we see a beautiful picture of the plan of God that has been working itself out through all of history up until this point, and now is is at the point of its culmination. So maybe we'll, as we go to the Lord in prayer, um, it is just a moment um, for us to reflect on those things to reflect on the sacrifice that Jesus Christ has made for for us, to reflect on the fact that were it not for Jesus handing himself over to death, that we would be without hope. To maybe reflect on the fact that in this story, if we had lived in Jesus' own time, we might have been the people standing on the walls saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord on that Sunday. And we might be the people the next Friday saying, crucify him, crucify him. Because in between now and then, he is not going to live up to the kind of Messiah that we thought he should be. But instead, he's going to be the exact kind of Messiah that we needed him to be. 
So let's go to the Lord in, in prayer. Just think and meditate on these things. Ask God to implant these truths in our heart and let us live in light of them each day. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Jesus, we thank you that even as you approached Jerusalem, even as you approached your destiny, Jesus, even as you knew the cost that was coming, you knew the rejection of your friends, you knew the abuse and the scourging that would be brought upon you, you knew the indignity and the torture of the cross. You knew the horror of bearing the sin of all mankind for all time that day. You knew the break in fellowship, whatever that means in, in, in a way that we cannot even understand that you would look to your father and ask, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You knew exactly what was coming. And yet you, the Bible tells us, for the joy that was set before you endured the cross. God, it is humbling that we would recognize that the joy that was set before him, at least in part, included our salvation. That Jesus loved us so much that he was willing to suffer all of those things. To bring us to himself, to bring us to the Father. God, to make us his bride and his people. Father, we are unworthy of that. And yet you did not do it because we were worthy, but because you were worthy. Because you are good. Because you are gracious. Because you are merciful. Because you are loving. Because you are sacrificial. Because you are what we should be and yet aren't. Father, we thank you that your son has died in our place. We thank you that he has lived in our place. We thank you that through his resurrection, his ascension, God, and his imminent return, that we have a hope and a future and life everlasting. We thank you. We praise you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.